Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. And first of all, forgive me for the delayed departure of this episode. I've been traveling around the world pretty much constantly for the last few months, and I just haven't had time to update. So this is episode 36, and it's icy cold out there. And time to check out the incidents involving icing, starting with a short list and general description of the causes, then focusing on the two Aeroflot Antonov accidents in 1971 and the design faults in the ATR-72. There's an unfortunately long list of commercial airliners lost due to icing. More than 540 accidents and events caused by aircraft icing by the late 1980s in the United States alone. Most of these were fatal. Anti-icing and de-icing research can be traced back to the early 1930s, and in 1948, two scientists, A.G. Preston and Calvin Blackman, conducted the first successful iced flight experiment in which the drag coefficient increased by 81% when the wing was covered and the pilot reported the plane was almost beyond control. I'm not sure what aircraft they used, but the results were extraordinary. Other research by NASA on the DHC-6 Twin Otter aircraft measured various conditions and ice shapes and their effect on aircraft thrust, landing flaps and the angle of attack. It's thought that the first recorded case of a commercial airplane accident caused by icing occurred on December 15, 1920 when a de Havilland DH-4 mail plane operated by the United States Post Office Department, as they called it, crashed near Belleville, Pennsylvania, and that was in the USA, of course, due to ice accumulation on the wings and the control surfaces. The pilot of the DH-4 was Lieutenant George L. Boyle. His mechanic was Ira Biffle. Both were killed in that incident. I can't find any earlier mention of commercial-type planes and icing. One of the more interesting accidents, which wasn't fatal, was on the 19th December 1946, where a railway air service Douglas Dakota 3 stalled on takeoff one kilometre northeast of Northolt Airport in London. This was the case of the scheduled service to Glasgow Airport from London. Four crew and one passenger were on board. Yes, you heard correctly, one PAX. The aircraft had been de-iced, it was a cold snowy evening and flights had been delayed. The aircraft was finally ready for departure and taxied into position for takeoff, but the snowstorm had closed the airport to incoming traffic, and now that it opened again, outbound traffic was subject to long delays, allowing the planes to land first. Snow continued to fall. The pilots on board the Dakota sat waiting for permission to take off for more than an hour as the temperature hovered below freezing and the snow continued. Eventually, they were cleared for takeoff, and that's when things began to go wrong pretty quickly. The Dakota accelerated down the runway, and as the captain rotated, he discovered that the plane would not gain height. The ice on the wings had disturbed the flow of air. They had stalled. There was no runway left. It was too late to abort takeoff, so the pilot was forced to try to get the aircraft to climb. It staggered to run 50 feet AGL, but was now flying straight down the main street called Angus Drive in ground effect until the left wing hit rooftops and the aircraft slewed through 90 degrees coming to rest on the roofs of two houses at 44 and 46 Angus Drive in the London suburb of South Racelip. Gulf Alpha Gulf Zulu Alpha was severely damaged, and the radio officer called Murdoch was fortunate he'd switched seats just before takeoff. Some metalwork was pushed through the radio operator's seat and would have probably killed him had he been sitting there. The crew couldn't believe their luck. Here they were perched on the top of roofs uninjured. Irene Zygmunt and her four-month-old son David lived in number 44 Angus Drive and the aircraft came to rest on their roof without even waking up the child who was asleep in his cot upstairs. Another miracle, these two were also uninjured. 
The five, four crew in one packs, gingerly climbed down into the house loft, descended from the loft ladder onto the landing, and then walked down the stairs out of the front door. The aircraft was a write-off, the house badly damaged. It was repaired, but from then on, oil stains would reappear regularly in the ceilings as a reminder of the bizarre incident. It was quickly determined that the cause of the crash was the snow which had frozen to the aircraft's wings, while Gulf Alpha Gulf Zulu Alpha was waiting for takeoff, resulting in the aircraft not gaining height. The house, by the way, it landed on was subsequently nicknamed Dakota Rest, and had it happened these days, surely it would have been converted to a must-visit Airbnb. The pilot was blamed for trying to take off after spending an hour in snow, and he was promptly renamed Captain Rooftop Johnson. Sounds a little like a blues guitarist. So to other more serious matters. This would be the highly unusual twin crashes of the Antonovs in 1971, both caused by ice accretion. In the freezing winter of January 1971 in the Soviet Union, two Aeroflot Antonov AN-12s crashed on approach to Sertogut International Airport, just nine days apart. Sertogut is in Siberia. The crashes occurred under near-identical circumstances due to aircraft type's lack of preparedness for flying into severe icing conditions, and safety rules changed after the second Antonov went down. Sertogut is a city on the Ob River in western Siberia. Its claim to fame is it's home to two of the world's most powerful gas power plants. It's also known as the oil capital of Russia. These days, the most important enterprises are the oil firms Sorgutneftgas and Sorgut Gazprom, the latter a unit of Gazprom. Back to the icing. The first accident on January 26 involved an Antonov AN-12 registration Charlie 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 Papa 11,000, which had completed 5,626 flying hours prior to the fateful journey from its base at Omsk Trenstalny Airport. It was one of two Antonovs from the 75th Flying Squadron based at Omsk and transported freight. The crew were ordered to fly Charlie 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 Papa to Skytkfar, where routine maintenance work was to be carried out. Authorities wanted the crew to cart 12 tons of freight along to Surgut, mainly rolls of netting and plastic floor tiles, some other household goods, and a pile driver to use in construction. The captain was Sergei Alexovich Bakarev. Second officer was Anatoly Petrovich, and they were joined by a navigator, flight mechanic instructor, radio operator, and a steward. I can't find information about their flying experience. The Russian report does not have the detail. A relief crew of six joined the main pilots, including a captain, a second officer, navigator, flight mechanic, radio operator, and a spare steward. The weather at Sergut was overcast, solid cloud at 1,400 feet, visibility 5.5 kilometers, a fresh breeze blowing from the north, temperature minus 9 degrees Celsius. At 1920 hours, the Sergut radar controller cleared the crew of the AN-12 to descend to a height of 14,700 feet from their cruising altitude of 21,000 feet, and then to descend to 3,900 feet. The plane descended at first without incident, and the crew duly reported their altitude. ATC ordered them to contact landing control. They were approaching the runway on a magnetic heading of 180 degrees and turning for a second time and descending to 1,300 feet when things began to go wrong. By now, they'd also switched on their de-icing boot systems. They were about 11 kilometers from the airport and passed over the outer marker beacon at 1,300 feet. The controller acknowledged their position report at 2,100 hours 36 local time. The crew were told to turn for a third time in their holding pattern. They acknowledged and that was the last communication that took place. 
Witnesses said they saw the Antonov approaching Sotogut from the northeast. Radar had it flying at 205 knots and turning left. Suddenly, it appeared to enter a progressive left turn and lost altitude rapidly. It continued turning from its original bearing of around 110 degrees and now heading almost east on a bearing of 40. Then it banked left and crashed into the ground in the vicinity of the river Pochekoika and was completely destroyed and the wreckage caught fire. Initial investigations revealed that the icing conditions between 1,300 and 4,200 feet caused the wings to ice up and they could no longer produce lift. But it wasn't over for the pilots of Antonov AN-12s in Siberia. Just nine days later, on New Year's Eve, 31st January 1971, another aircraft was the Antonov AN-12B with registration inevitably Charlie, 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 Papa, 12996. It was pretty new, having flown just 391 hours after leaving the production line and flying for Tashkent Aviation starting 31st of August 1970, then being handed over to the main directorate of the Civil Air Fleet. This was the governmental organization tasked with overseeing aviation throughout the USSR. Then it was sent to 2nd Tuman Aviation Department of the Territorial Directorate of the Civil Air Fleet. Like its unfortunate partner, the Antonov was also carrying cargo. Charlie 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 Papa 12996 was sent to transport goods from Tumen to Surgut. The aircraft's load consisted of 12 metric tons of fresh seafood, mainly Pacific herring packed in boxes. It was piloted by a crew from the 259th Flying Squadron, led by Captain Konstantin Ivanovich Adamovich and 2nd Officer Viktor Pavlovich Bonomorov. There was also a navigator, flight mechanic, radio operator and steward on board, along with a loadmaster who was monitoring the hearing boxes. At 0100 hours 25 Moscow time, the airliner took off from Tumen Airport, climbed to a flight level of 19,600 feet. The altitude sound odd because the Russians used the metric system, they gave altitude in meters, but I'm converting to feet just because most of the world does too. At 0230, Moscow time, and about 120 kilometers from Surkut, the crew radioed the radar controller for a weather report. The sky, they were told, was fully covered by a layered cloud down to an altitude of 800 feet. There was also a fresh breeze blowing from the south-southwest. Visibility was 6 kilometers, air temperature minus 7 Celsius. When the AN-12 was 100 kilometers away from Surkut, the radar controller cleared the crew down to 14,700 feet, and before descending, the crew switched on the Antonov de-icing system. So far, so good. They duly leveled off at 14,700, 80 kilometers from Sotokut, when they were transferred to the approach controller, who gave them permission to descend to 3,900 feet. The crew were concentrating on the approach. ATC announced they were landing on runway 180, and airfield pressure was 766 millimeters of mercury, or 10.21. Passing through an altitude of 3,000 feet, the crew reported moderate icing conditions. A minute later, they upped that to extreme. They could see the ice forming on the wings. They had switched on their de-icing system before their descent, as I said, like their colleagues. It wasn't going to be enough. At 0200 hours 37 and 12 seconds, the plane descended to an altitude of 2,000 feet, and then a few seconds later, the crew began the third turn to the left in the airfield traffic pattern, at 1,300 feet, the same as the previous plane. Ten seconds later, someone in the cabin shouted, The engines are starting to shake! And the aircraft data showed abnormal movements. 
Flow separation was taking place on the wing, but Captain Adamovich didn't realize this. Everything was happening too quickly and close to the ground. He continued the third turn, then ordered flaps set to 15 degrees, the landing configuration. That slowed the plane from 205 miles per hour to 192, and it skewed. Five seconds later, he reversed the flap order, but it was too late. The Antonov was stalling. Turning to the left, the crew tried to counter this by turning to the right, but the aircraft yawed. The crew tried turning left again. The plane then rolled to the right, and it went into an incipient spin at low altitude, the worst-case scenario. The G-forces increased. The plane accelerated to 245 miles per hour, and then it ploughed into the ground. Part of the wreckage, including the tail section, fell into a nearby lake. All seven on board were killed. Another icing incident, nine days after the first. At the same airport, same altitude, same result. Authorities investigated and reported that a lack of flight testing on the behavior of the aircraft with wing icing and a lack of recommendations to the crew for flying in such conditions led to these two accidents. There was also a lack of data on the effectiveness of the aircraft's wing anti-icing system during intensive icing conditions. Perhaps, more ominous for the designers, the air bleed valves from the engines were frozen partly open, which meant they couldn't get enough hot air from the engines to their de-icing systems. In order to prevent further catastrophes of the same nature, significant improvements were made to the air bleed control system, including an indicator to show the fully open position of the valves. Special tests were then carried out, the results of which helped to clarify the aerodynamic characteristics of the AN-12 during icing, and the Soviets issued new directives concerning flight into known icing conditions. The Russian report did not state very clearly the entire cause. Of course, this was the Soviet period, and Moscow is notorious when it comes to accurate information. Clearly, however, the icing conditions were expected but underestimated. The scientific gurus tell us that additional rolling movements can be caused by asymmetrical icing, also by one-side anti-icing system breakdowns, or the formation of ice ridges by water droplets beyond the ice protection systems. And it's the formation of these ice ridges by water droplets beyond the ice protection system and one side of anti-icing systems that is likely to cause rolling and overturn, according to these gurus. Case in point of this ridge cause was the ATR-72 crash in 1994. At that time, the airplane was at a severe level of icing condition, and the co-effect of the electric heating de-icing system at the wing leading edge and the natural conditions formed an ice ridge on the second half of the wing, resulting in a negative pressure zone on the one side's aileron. In a routine turn, that negative pressure zone led to an automatic deflection of the aileron before the aircraft lost control, rolled, capsized, crashed. This was American Eagle Flight 4184, officially operating as Simmons Airlines Flight 4184 from Indianapolis to Chicago on October 31, 1994. When it hit severe icing conditions, the pilots lost control and it crashed into a field. All 68 people aboard were killed in the high-speed impact. The captain was 29-year-old Orlando Aguilar, with 8,000 hours of flight time, including 1,548 in the ATR. The first officer was 30-year-old Jeffrey Gagliano, with more than 5,000 flight hours, including 3,657 in the ATR as well. There were two flight attendants. One of them was on her first day of the job. Bad weather in Chicago prompted ATC to hold flight 4184 over Lucid intersection at 10,000 feet. While holding, 
The plane flew into a deadly atmospheric condition of freezing rain, where supercooled droplets caused ice buildup rapidly. Minutes later, they were cleared to descend to 8,000 feet, where the plane entered another holding pattern. The cockpit voice recorder picked up an overspeed warning as the ATR descended because the flaps were extended. The flaps were retracted. Then the pitch, attitude and angle of attack suddenly increased, followed by a sharp, uncontrolled roll 77 degrees to the right, which disengaged the autopilot. The pilots shifted the ailerons to the neutral position. The plane rolled back to wings level, but then it banked right once more until the ATR was inverted while the first officer tried to counter by pulling back on the controls. The plane did a complete full right roll and passed through to a wings level attitude once more. The ailerons were deflected towards the left and the roll was stopped at 144 degrees of right bank. The pilots then rolled the plane to the left and as the bank angle decreased through 90 degrees, they applied nose-up elevator to stop the downward pitch as the plane had reached a 73-degree nose-down attitude. By this point, the airplane was descending through 4,900 feet and the ATR ground proximity warning began to sound, followed by an expletive from the first officer and a rapid increase in nose-up elevator. A very loud crunching sound was heard before the end of the cockpit voice recording. The airplane crashed into a soybean field, partially inverted, in a nose-down attitude at 375 knots, nearly 700 kilometers an hour. There was no fire, but the horizontal stabilizer and outboard sections of both wings separated from the plane prior to impact in close proximity to the ground. Those were the crunching sounds on the CVR. What the National Transportation Safety Board discovered was quite a shock. ATR owners Airbus and Leonardo failed to inform operators and crew about known effects of freezing precipitation on the stability and control characteristics, autopilot and related operational procedures. The NTSB then castigated the French Directorate General for Civil Aviation, or DGAC's, inadequate oversight of the ATR 42 and 72 and its failure to take necessary corrective action to ensure continuous airworthiness in icing conditions. They also accused the French DGAC of failing to provide the FAA with timely airworthiness information developed from previous ATR incidents in icing conditions. The FAA was going to be blamed in turn for failing to ensure that aircraft icing certification requirements had been followed by the ATR designers and for failing to manage operational requirements for flight into icing conditions. The French Bureau of Inquiry and Analysis for Civil Aviation Safety or BEA for short, made its own separate investigation and agreed with NTSB's cause of the accident as aileron deflection leading to loss of control. But the French blamed the pilots for the crash, using what can only be called red herring arguments, saying the crew were talking about non-aviation issues before they extended the flaps at high speed. It's true that the captain was indulging in completely inappropriate conversation and worse he had apparently left the flight deck to chat up what he called the chicks back there, but this had no direct bearing on the plane's response to icing conditions. The BEA also claimed that the air traffic controller, who was being trained at the time, was not adequately monitoring the flight, but both of these somewhat weak points were battered away by the NTSB, which pointed out there was no direct link to the accident caused by the pilots chatting up the chicks, nor the ATC. There was something wrong with the ATR de-icing boot design. While the lawyers in the suits fiddled about, indulging in the usual finger-pointing and time-wasting exercises, 
AMR stopped flying its American Eagle ATRs out of the northern hubs and moved them to the southern hubs and the Caribbean. Hubs such as Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, Miami, Florida and San Juan in Puerto Rico. And this was to reduce potential icing problems in the future. Not exactly a note of confidence in the ATR-72's anti-icing systems then. These days, the ATR-42 and 72 aircraft are regarded as compliant with all icing conditions. The de-icing boots though reach back to 12.5% of the cord where previously there were paltry 5% and 7% respectively. Some researchers say that this aircraft should still avoid icing conditions because test findings show that ice forming on the wing up to 23% of the cord and 30% on the tail means their little ATR icing boots may still not perform in an optimal manner. It's not that the accident stopped there as well. Three ATR-72s crashed after this terrible incident. Trans-Asia Airways Flight 791 went down on December 21, 2002, killing both pilots on board. The cause? Water droplet size that was beyond Part 25 Appendix C of FAA design certification. Too much ice. Aero-Caribbean Flight 883 crashed on November 4, 2010, killing all 68 people on board. And Air Flight 120 crashed on April 2, 2012, because of a failure to de-ice the aircraft prior to takeoff. 33 of the people on board that aircraft were killed. Then there was another incident in 2016 when Scandinavian Airlines Flight SK4144 operating an ATR-72 registration Oscar Yankee Juliet Zulu Charlie and operated by Danish airline JetTime was en route from Bergen to Alsund when it experienced control problems after the flight had encountered severe icing. There were 40 passengers and crew on board. The pilots were highly aware of the dangers, and Norwegian investigators found that the pilots were prepared for moderate icing and had activated the ice protection systems. They were also paying close attention to ice accretion as the aircraft climbed through 10,000 feet on its way to 19,000 feet, but they had expected ice conditions to stop above 14,000 feet, but it didn't because the crew didn't have the latest report, which indicated icing conditions and cloud up to 20,000 feet. Then the pilots made the situation worse by using an autopilot at 15,000 feet, which meant they didn't feel the changes taking place on the ailerons or other control surfaces, which they would have felt had they been hand-flying the plane. They also apparently changed altitude and course too slowly given the dangers they were in, so it wasn't just a deadly ATR-72 performance in ice here. The pilot's situational awareness was not up to scratch. This is what the report says. Let's have a look at it. By leaving the autopilot engaged, it aggravated the situation because as the system executed a bank of close to 30 degrees to the left, the left vector was reduced and the angle of attack was increased to maintain altitude and, of course, the stall speed went up. They had no idea this was going on because they couldn't feel it. 12 seconds into the turn, with airspeed dropping to 163 knots, the stick shaker activated, the autopilot automatically disengaged, the left roll increased, the first officer pushed the column forward, then applied right rudder and right turn. But the left bank continued, reaching more than 68 degrees, while the ATR pitched 3.3 degrees nose down, then suddenly banked uncontrollably to the right, reaching an angle on that side of over 66 degrees, as the nose down pitch then increased to 8 degrees. Terrifyingly, the bank reversed once more to the left and now pitched down at 12 degrees, losing altitude, descending over 6,400 feet per minute 
and the airspeed increased to 190 knots. Eventually, at 13,425 feet, the ATR pulled up out of the death dive and climbed again, reaching 14,500 feet before the crew took control and descended to 10,000 feet. The ice that had accumulated on the airframe was now breaking off and saving their lives. After recovery, the captain told the horrified passengers what had happened. The Norwegian inquiry said the pilots planning on the route was faulty and they'd made mistakes or inappropriate decisions, as they put it, en route, particularly the attempt to climb. The pilots tried to keep climbing, believing icing ended about 14,000 feet when it didn't. They didn't have the latest information. Then they chose to level off at 15,000 feet, which showed they did not fully understand how serious the situation had become. Both pilots were applying control inputs during the upset, understandable, a fight-or-flight impulse, if you excuse the pun, but this impeded recovery. They were both pulling at different angles on the control inputs. They also omitted several memory items, flap deployment, higher engine power from the checklist for a stall. The positive end is that this crew quickly regained their composure and landed at Arsund Airport without further problems. None of the 40 occupants were injured, and the aircraft was undamaged. So the safety improvements have been made on the ATR-72 and its sales attest to its success. ATR has led the turboprop regional airliner market since 2010 with a 75% share. The planes being operated in nearly 100 countries by 200 airlines. They claim the ATR takes off or lands somewhere in the world every 8 seconds. A whole bunch of new design changes were made, including thermal de-icing replacing pneumatic boots. The manufacturers also introduced a special ground de-icing system called Hotel Mode, which is specific to the plane. It allows the aircraft to be de-iced while the right engine is running, with the propeller stopped and bleed air valve off. That means it can be de-iced and anti-iced like a jet aircraft at the holding point. But there's a limit on something called holdover time, which is protection from ice and snow achieved by the anti-icing fluids that remain on these aircraft surfaces on the ground for a period of time. But that period of time is remains flexible and is up to the captain to estimate flight by flight using a spreadsheet that covers conditions and the type of fluids used. As the manufacturers point out, holdover time is run out when frozen deposits form on the aircraft surfaces. The bottom line is this, according to skilled aviators, don't try to outclimb icing in anything other than a high-speed jet transport or a very high-performance turboprop. But even then, it's a gamble. Basically, flying slowly at a high angle of attack in a holding pattern with a cold-soaked plane is asking for trouble. With that, it's time to end. Next, we'll look at a few bird strikes. Until then, Aviate, navigate, and communicate safely. Goodbye.